If this is your first time listening to Presumed Guilty, stop, go back, and start with episode one. Everything will make a lot more sense. Last time on Presumed Guilty. Five years after Burt left the police department, and with a new energy from investigating Helen Wilson's murder, he was hired by a newly elected sheriff as a deputy. Finally, the sheriff checked with the police department because the case actually fell under the police's jurisdiction. He offered up everything his deputy had developed to the police chief, who surprisingly didn't want it. The deputy had the wrong people, the chief said. Lisa said Tom Winslow had been there too, with his girlfriend. Four years later, she even knew the color and style of each person's coats. She talked about the car too. It was a 1972 green Oldsmobile with a brown top. That was the year, model, and style of Tom Winslow's car. He and his girlfriend entered Helen's apartment, along with Joanne and Lobo. He told Bert that almost immediately, Lobo and Joanne forced the old woman into the bedroom and shut the door. Tom and his girlfriend fled when they heard Helen's screams. The part that I said I knew, that I was in the apartment and everything, that was not true because... Well, I don't believe that right now. You're lying. Okay? I've got people arrested that are sitting here telling me exactly what happened. I wasn't in the... Bullshit, Tom. You were there. I got people telling me exactly what you did to them. Don't sit here and lie to me. I don't... I'm not gonna listen to this shit. I know I'm not lying. How come everybody says you were? I don't know. And that's why I can't figure it out either, but I'm not lying. And I'm not going to do time and maybe death or something Tom, for something I need listen. to do. Listen to me. Joanne. <laughs> what, Julie? Uh, Joanne, let me, let me ask you one thing, okay? Let me tell you something. Just a second. Don't get teed off. Let me tell you something. It's going to be to your benefit if you listen to me, okay? Four years after Helen Wilson was buried, two years after the hog farmer became a deputy, Bert Searcy had six people behind bars. From the Lincoln Journal Star and their award-winning reporting project, this is Presumed Guilty. I'm Elizabeth Rembert, and I'm telling the story of what went wrong for six innocent people to serve a combined 70 years for the murder of Helen Wilson. In episode two, we followed Bert Searcy, the hog farmer turned investigator, as he assembled the so-called Beatrice Six. And in this episode, we'll watch as his case comes into the courtroom. At the end of the last episode, Bert had six people behind bars more than four years after Helen Wilson, a 68-year-old widow, was raped and suffocated in her downtown Beatrice apartment on February 6, 1985. We have Lobo, or Joseph White, an Alabama native who served time in the Army. The days after his discharge were filled with sex, booze, and hustling. He came to Beatrice in late 1984 and left for Alabama in March 1985. Lisa Brown, a 17-year-old Beatrice girl and Bert's confidential informant number one, 
raised Lobo as a suspect in her statement. He would always maintain his innocence. Next is Joanne Taylor, who hailed from North Carolina and came to Beatrice with Joe to see her daughter. She is diagnosed with borderline personality disorder and was violent in the Beatrice party scene. In her statement, Lisa Brown said Joanne bragged to her about committing the murder. With help from Bert and Beatrice Police Sergeant Sam Stevens, Joanne said she was there when Joe and another boy stabbed Helen Wilson. Joe and Joanne often stayed with Tom Winslow, who became a suspect when he told Bert he was in Helen Wilson's apartment with the two the night of the murder. He said he and his girlfriend left when Lobo and Joanne forced the widow into a room and they heard her screams. Later, he said he'd lied in that statement. He was not there when Helen died, but he maintained that Lobo and Joanne were there. Deb Sheldon was Helen Wilson's great niece and became a suspect when her husband implicated her in a conversation with Bert. She said she visited her great aunt's apartment with Tom, Joe, and Joanne. She remembered hearing her aunt scream, and she said she got hurt during the attack and her head was bleeding. James Dean was a 25-year-old construction worker when he emerged as a suspect during the same conversation with Deb Sheldon's husband. He told Bert he knew the other suspects but was not in Helen's apartment the night she died. He defended himself for two weeks, but began to have doubts after he failed a polygraph test. Dr. Wayne Price, a Beatrice psychologist who also worked as a part-time deputy, said James was likely repressing the memory of witnessing Helen's death. Finally, Kathy Gonzalez became a suspect in a conversation with Deb Sheldon. She had lived in the apartment above Helen Wilson's, and she told authorities she knew nothing, but agreed to return to Gage County. She continued to deny involvement, but was frustrated by her inability to remember what others said she did. This was where the Beatrice Six stood when they came before Richard Smith, the Gage County attorney. Richard was the county's top lawman, and he made sure police and deputies knew that. Some said he ruled with an iron hand and called him King Richard. He rebuffed his critics, saying his tough convictions made up for any ferocity. And the six convictions he got in the Helen Wilson murder case were the biggest of his career. Decades later, DNA testing would make them even bigger. The exonerations were not something Richard could have imagined when he joined the county attorney's office in 1978 and then became the attorney in 1980. Voters would keep him in office for 27 years. Over those years, he rarely took cases to trial. He preferred plea agreements. They were efficient, they helped save the county money, and they helped with overburdened courts. So, with six defendants in the Helen Wilson case, he immediately started negotiating with their court-appointed lawyers. He'd say he was, quote, trying to show a distinction between the ones who did the crime and the idiots along for the ride. But, aside from the type B blood possibly matching one defendant, the case had almost no physical evidence to put the suspects in the victim's apartment. Richard would need some of these so-called idiots to be witnesses to turn on each other. Remember how hard the 1985 investigation worked to find forensic evidence at the scene? 
They tested dozens of people for their blood type and threw out suspects that didn't match, the type B non-secreter blood type. They'd even tested Joe White back in the early stages, but let him go once his army card showed he had O-positive blood. This new investigation lacked that kind of scrutiny. Bert had built his case on word of mouth. Later, he'd even admit he'd paid little attention to forensics. So Richard prepared to prosecute on eyewitness testimony from some of the participants. And he had a sledgehammer to collect those testimonies. The threat of the death penalty. Like all county attorneys, he knew the possibility of being executed motivated cooperation. Of the six defendants in Helen's murder, Joe seems the least likely to fold. He'd admitted nothing since his arrest in Alabama. He said he believed his innocence would emerge, and he put his faith into the system. Joe read books and wrote short stories and poetry in his cell, as Judge William Rist denied almost every significant motion made on his behalf. The judge set his trial date for October 30, 1985, as his co-defendants lined up to testify against him. His old friend Joanne Taylor had incriminated herself in the first three statements to authorities, but she stopped cooperating after she got a lawyer. Her attorney filed motions that showed Joanne would fight. A motion to suppress her confession was her best bet. If the judge found Joanne had been improperly questioned, the prosecution's case against her could crumble. And since she'd implicated at least two of the other suspects, those cases would be at stake as well. Her lawyer argued Joanne made her statements involuntarily because she didn't know she was under arrest for first-degree murder. He added that officers coerced her by improperly promising her they would protect her and her young daughter from retribution by her co-defendants. Even Richard didn't like how Bert and Sam had interrogated Joanne. They'd mentioned too many details about the crime and had tried to get her to change her account to fit the facts. There were also the interruptions in the tape where she changed her story after a gap. Despite the red flags, Richard didn't think the two investigators had broken the law. In court, he produced multiple forms with Joanne's signature, showing she'd been advised of her rights, waived them, and had not been threatened into talking. Judge Rist made his ruling on August 3, 1989. Joanne's statements would be allowed in court. On September 1st, she pled guilty. Her deal with the prosecution convicted her of second-degree murder and kept her from becoming the first woman on Nebraska's death row. It also meant she would testify for the state. Deb Sheldon, who Joe said he didn't even know, had already pled guilty to aiding and abetting second-degree murder. She told authorities she saw Joe beat and rape her great-aunt Helen. Her bargain reduced her possible punishment from death to a maximum of 10 years in prison. James Dean was next. He'd initially denied any involvement, but a failed polygraph test got him talking. He said he was with a group of people who broke into the apartment and attacked Helen. Richard asked him what caused his 180-degree switch, and James said he'd remembered his involvement through a dream. From the memories he thought he saw in his dreams, James would give authorities five more statements, overall telling nine different accounts since his arrest. 
Burt used at least six of them for the case. The new versions began discussions between James's lawyer and the county attorney for a plea bargain. That bargain was solidified when Burt showed James the crime video. When James saw Helen's lifeless body, he buried his head in his lawyer's coat and sobbed and said he was ready to plead guilty to aiding and abetting second-degree murder. His plea gave total cooperation to the state of Nebraska regarding the homicide of Helen Wilson and reduced his possible punishment from death to 10 years. James and Deb both said that much of their statements about the murder came from what they'd seen in their dreams. James estimated 90% of his memories were revealed to him as he slept. And their statements were devastating for Joe. They said a group of six, Joe, Joanne, Deb, James, Tom Winslow, and Kathy Gonzalez, had broken into the small apartment with a plan to rob the woman. Joe and Tom took turns raping Helen, while Joanne held her down and put a pillow over her face. In a pre-trial deposition, Joe's lawyer asked James if there was anything he remembered from actually being at the crime scene. James responded with this, quote, Oh, well, when you dream about something that you did, you're actually there. He also said the crime scene video helped jog his memory. He mentioned conversations with his attorney where they developed a scenario for what had happened in the apartment. James's ability to recall supposed details from a four-year-old crime, but then be unable to keep straight what he'd told authorities the day before, left the other defense lawyers skeptical. The defense also learned how Bert had been helpful to James in recalling that night. Bert had shown him a piece of paper with the names of his co-defendants to confirm where they'd been sitting in the car as they drove to the victim's apartment. Then, when he was asked to physically describe Joseph White, the man James claimed he saw rape Helen Wilson, James said he could not. He said, quote, I wouldn't know him if I seen him. Kathy Gonzalez followed suit by pleading no contest to aiding and abetting second-degree murder. Joe got his own shot at a deal on September 28th when the prosecutor offered him second-degree murder and 25 years to life. He refused. The state had four potential witnesses against Joseph White, and he called them all liars. All he had was his hope that a jury would agree. On October 30, 1989, the 26-year-old Joseph White walked into the Jefferson County courtroom. The curious and connected filled many of the 195 seats, and nearly two dozen of Helen Wilson's relatives listened as Gage County attorney Richard Smith's baritone voice filled the room. He had flat-out confessions and guilty pleas from three people charged in the 68-year-old widow's rape and murder. And he had a no-contest plea from a fourth. Three of them were ready to place their hands on the Bible and send Joe to prison for life, or worse. Tony Redman, Joe's attorney, knew the state's witnesses were both a strength and a weakness for the prosecution. He knew he needed to cast doubt on them, and he asked the jurors to consider the credibility of Joanne, James, and Deb. He pointed out Joanne had said she was so high she saw paint bleeding down the walls of Helen's apartment. 
She also gave investigators several versions of the story. And James and Deb, they were only testifying to memories they had recovered through dreams. Richard stood up for his witnesses and admitted the inconsistencies. But he drove home one point. All three would say that Joseph White was there and that he had raped Helen Wilson. And after all, he said, quote, If you were there and observed that, who wouldn't dream? Here's the story Deb Sheldon told about the night her great aunt was murdered. It all started in a bathroom. On February 5th, 1985, Joanne and James met to talk in the bathroom of a friend's apartment. Then she joined them to go riding with Tom Winslow and Joseph White, who they knew as Lobo. They ended up at Helen Wilson's apartment. Her great aunt recognized Deb and said hello. Then Joanne and Joe started shoving the woman around, elbowing Deb when she tried to stop them. They knocked Deb into a wall so hard her head was bleeding and she passed out. When Deb gained consciousness, she said her great aunt was on the living room floor, her hands bound behind her back. Joanne knelt near the woman's head and held a pillow over her face. Tom held her feet and Joe straddled her as she struggled and screamed. When Joe was finished raping the 68-year-old widow, Tom rolled her over and took his turn. Deb said her great-aunt didn't move anymore after that. Joe's lawyer, Tony Redman, came out swinging. Deb acknowledged she'd only met Joe once, on the night of the murder, and she admitted she'd told Tony that she didn't know what Joe White looked like. Tony asked her what had caused her to change her testimony so many times before the trial, and she said, quote, Nothing. I just did it. Tony then focused on Dr. Wayne Price's role. Deb admitted the part-time deputy and her own counselor had helped her remember the memories through dreams, after she'd initially recalled nothing. She told Tony her dreams and the facts she remembered from that night were identical. James Dean was next on the stand. He'd given authorities nine different statements after his arrest. He testified he'd seen Joe, Joanne, Tom, and Deb in Helen's apartment. He said he remembered freezing when he heard the widow's bones break. He vividly described the rapes. And he gave Joanne a more active role than just covering Helen's face. He said she was holding the hands and licking Helen's upper body. Back in Tom's car, James said Joe and Joanne talked about what had happened, and they said that it would be fun to do it again. Tony responded to James' testimony by focusing on an earlier conversation they'd had about Joseph White, one where James had said he wouldn't know Joe if he saw him. After James, Joanne took the stand. She admitted she'd held a pillow on Helen Wilson's face because she didn't want the widow to see the face that would haunt her. She said she knew from previous experience that when you're raped, the rapist's face can haunt you. She offered no explanation for the need to cover the widow's face, which was already wrapped tightly with an afghan. But her testimony tied Joe to a piece of physical evidence. She said he performed a trick that ended with torn money, just like the torn $5 bill found on the floor of Helen's apartment 
and entered as Exhibit 19 in Joe's trial for first-degree murder. For damage control, Tony had her detail her personality disorder and how it had led to memory problems. She also told the court how she talked telepathically from her cell with her fiancé in another state, and she described her vision of a woman dressed in Victorian clothing. Then Tony asked Joanne about her vastly different accounts of Helen's death and how she'd come to the version that more closely matched the crime scene. They went back and forth, with Tony asking her about the police officer's role in her story. At first she said they didn't feed her any information, but then admitted the information they gave her was influential in helping her sort out her memories. And by the end, she said she would not have been able to remember anything without the officer's information. When Joe took the stand to deny any role in the crime, he said he'd never done a trick with a $5 bill and he'd never even met Deb Sheldon. But his answer to a single question may have determined where he'd spend the next two decades. The prosecutor showed the church portrait Helen had given to her children and grandchildren for Christmas right before she was killed. Richard asked him to tell him what it was. Joe answered with what he saw. It's a picture of an old woman, he said. The defense lawyers winced. They'd never thought to prepare him for that moment. Later, Tony said his client's answer was honest. To him, that's what the picture was. But after the trial's drama, Joe's answer only increased perception that he was a cold-blooded killer. Before handing the case to the jury, Judge Rist asked the jury to consider the motives behind the eyewitness testimonies. Their maximum sentences had started with capital punishment, but Deb and James had signed deals that would likely result in sentences of 10 years and actual time of half that long. Prosecutors had reduced the charge against Joanne from first to second degree murder, and they recommended 15 years of prison time for her. This is from the judge to the jurors. Quote, you should hesitate to convict the defendant if you decide that their testimony or any of it is false about an important matter and that there is no other evidence to support the testimony. The jury began their deliberations at 11.40 a.m. on Thursday, November 9th. They came back four hours later. Guilty. Helen Wilson's family had endured the entire two-week trial and more than four years of wondering since their mother's and grandmother's death. When asked if the verdict offered relief, Helen's son Daryl pumped his fist in the air. At his sentencing two months later, Joe's insistence that he was innocent was met with a life behind bars. Kathy Gonzalez got 10 years, along with James Dean and Deborah Sheldon. Joanne Taylor had been recommended a 15-year sentence by the prosecution, but the judge believed that she had likely killed Helen Wilson when she said she placed the pillow over her face. The judge gave her 40 years in prison. Finally, Tom Winslow got 50 for aiding and abetting second-degree murder. For Bert Searcy, Richard Smith, and much of Nebraska, it was case closed but Joseph White would fight to keep it open.